Sleep is vital to our overall health and just overall well-being. Although it's difficult to answer the question, why do we sleep? We spend a third of our lives sleeping. Many biological processes happen during sleep. The brain stores new information and gets rid of toxic waste. Second, nerve cells communicate and reorganize, which supports healthy brain function. And thirdly, the body repairs itself. It restores energy and it releases molecules like hormones and proteins. For these reasons, having adequate sleep duration is important to our overall well-being. But equally important to sleep duration is sleep quality. Disorganized sleep patterns have been proven to have overall negative health consequences. And this is also true in pregnancy. Obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, refers to periods of absent breathing called apnea or even episodes of shallow breathing, and this occurs during sleep despite respiratory efforts. OSA affects nearly 30 million people in the U.S. Now, in contrast to OSA, central sleep apnea, which is CSA, is defined by episodes of cessation of airflow due to absent breathing efforts. Collectively, OSA and CSA are referred to as Sleep Disorganized Breathing, or SDB. OSA is the focus of this episode. The prevalence of objectively determined obstructive sleep apnea in pregnant patients is poorly studied, but rates range from about 3% to 27% and vary depending on the gestational age and the method used to diagnose it. Pregnant women with OSA are most likely to have one of two different clinical phenotypes. Either they have OSA and then become pregnant, otherwise known as pre-existing OSA, or they develop OSA during pregnancy. That's appropriately called gestational OSA. There also seems to be a trend towards developing OSA as pregnancy progresses. The expanding uterus may restrict functional lung capacity by 20% on top of normal reductions typically seen during sleep, and the body's oxygen consumption increases about 20%. This means a person will need to take more breaths per minute at a time when the body should be relaxing. That's sleep. At the same time, the capillaries in the body become engorged due to the hypervolemia of pregnancy, and this leads to increased oropharynx edema, which can cause the breathing space to narrow. And of course, the rising obesity rate in the U.S. is making this problem worse. About 15 to 20 percent of obese pregnant women are estimated to have obstructive sleep apnea. OSA doesn't just give a disruption to the pregnant woman's sleep, it's linked to real pregnancy complications. Obstructive sleep apnea in early-mid-pregnancy has been associated with preeclampsia, fetal growth restriction, preterm birth, and gestational diabetes. And podcast family, listen to this. Evidence from a large national inpatient database study showed that pregnant women with a diagnosis of OSA during their delivery admission were at significantly increased risk of having cardiomyopathy, congestive heart failure, pulmonary embolism, and even death. Yep, that same study by Lewis et al. published in 2014 in the journal Sleep showed a five-fold increase of in-hospital mortality during a pregnancy and delivery in women with obstructive sleep apnea. That's no exaggeration. And of course, the effects of OSA are just that much more amplified in the presence of obesity.
At present, there's no specific guideline for screening of OSA in pregnant women. And don't worry, we're going to tackle this controversy a little bit later on in the episode. However, knowing that it has well-established associations with some adverse perinatal outcomes, this is a potential modifiable issue that should have early detection. Some clinicians have, in fact, called for a change in prenatal care screenings to include this. Once again, it's controversial, and I'll explain why towards the end of the episode. In this episode, we're going to summarize the latest research on obstructive sleep apnea and disorganized sleep patterns and their associated pregnancy outcomes. Should we screen for this in pregnancy? Does treatment for OSA prevent these adverse perinatal outcomes? It's very controversial, so you'll need to stay with us towards the end of the episode to find out. This topic suggestion comes from a second-year resident in Columbus, Ohio, who's part of our podcast family. Danny, thanks for reaching out. What a great clinical question. Enjoy your residency journey. It goes by real fast. Danny, here's your podcast. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. OSA in pregnancy is a real problem. On February the 10th, 2023, at the 43rd annual pregnancy meeting in San Francisco, remember that's the annual meeting from SMFM, data was presented with the title, quote, Trends in and outcomes associated with obstructive sleep apnea during deliveries in the U.S. End quote. The objective of this study was to assess trends in and outcomes associated with OSA during delivery admissions from 2000 to 2019. That's quite a spread. The results were a bit shocking. From 2000 to 2019, listen to this, the presence of OSA increased from 0.4 per 10,000 deliveries to 20.5 cases per 10,000 deliveries. That's an average annual percent increase change of 20.6%. That's super impressive. Clinical factors associated with OCA included obesity, as 57% of women with OSA had it. Other clinical factors associated with OSA included asthma, chronic hypertension, and pregestational diabetes. Now, listen to this. In adjusted analysis, OSA was associated with increased odds of mechanical ventilation or need for tracheostomy during the admission. I mean, what is that about? It also increased the chance of acute respiratory distress syndrome, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, and even stillbirth. And as we mentioned in the intro, there had a higher rate of pulmonary edema or heart failure and even of peripartum hysterectomy. And yes, of course, the one factor that keeps popping up with these studies with OSA in pregnancy is a higher risk of preterm birth. So the authors concluded, quote, 
OSA diagnoses are increasing in the obstetric population and are associated with a range of adverse outcomes during delivery admissions. And the authors were quick to point out that these factors were also independent of the comorbid condition of obesity. Now, all that's fine. We get that. OSA is linked to adverse perinatal outcomes. Fine. Ah, but then they threw in this nice little controversial statement at the end of their findings. Quote, these findings support increased screening for OSA in pregnancy. End quote. Oh boy, we're going to get into that controversy surrounding screening for OSA a bit later on in this episode. Next, let's get into the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, can be suspected based on a patient's history, their BMI, and complaints of snoring or persistent daytime fatigue and sleepiness. And in some instances, what's been documented is when a patient is admitted antepartum for whatever reason, and during sleep, she's noted to have episodes of hypoxia. In and of itself, that's kind of a sleep study, and the diagnosis of OSA can be made at that time as well. Diagnosis of OSA can be done through questionnaires like the STOP questionnaire. STOP stands for snoring, tiredness during daytime, observed apnea, and high blood pressure. That's the STOP questionnaire. There's also the STOP BANG questionnaire. That's S-T-O-P-B-A-N-G questionnaire. The BANG part stands for body mass index, age, neck circumference, and gender. There's also another scale called the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, all to say there's a variety of different tools that can be done at the bedside without resorting to the gold standard, which requires a sleep study. We'll talk about that in just a minute. A sleep study is required to provide a patient's AHI. The AHI is a big deal whenever we talk about obstructive sleep apnea. AHI is the apnea hypopnea scale. So apnea is obviously the cessation of breathing. The hypopnea is shallow or less breathing. All right. So that's the apnea hypopnea index or the AHI. You can see why AHI is much preferred rather than saying the apnea hypopnea index. (laughs) The AHI is a diagnostic tool for determining the presence and severity of obstructive sleep apnea. And that's done outside of pregnancy and can even be done in pregnancy also. I just hate some of the medical terms that we use that are not related to true obstetrics because they're stumbling blocks for me. Uh, Like the polysomnogram. Yeah, polysomnogram? Oh my goodness, please. Just say sleep study. (laughs) That's exactly what a sleep study is. But here at Clinical Pearls, we're here about education, so I got to tell you the true term. A sleep study is a polysomnogram. All right, fine. A polysomnogram is a study conducted by the sleep experts in order to determine the AHI for a patient. Now, during this sleep study, experts monitor the patient's brain waves, blood oxygen levels, heart rate, and then breathing during sleep. Polysomnography generally takes place in a sleep lab, but some are able to do it in a more simplified version at home. 
The AHI is measured on a numeric scale. Scores for adults are divided into three categories, all right? So it's mild, moderate, or severe. I mean, that makes sense. Mild, moderate, and severe. But remember this as a clinical pearl. The cutoff value for a diagnosis of OSA is five, all right? So an AHI score of at least five events per hour, but fewer than 15, gets a person a diagnosis of mild obstructive sleep apnea, so 5 to 15. Moderate is an AHI of at least 15 events per hour, but fewer than 30. All right, so mild is 5 to 15, moderate 15 to 30, and then severe, as you could guess, is an AHI of at least 30 episodes per sleep hour. Man, that's a lot. 30 episodes or more per sleep hour. Okay. Anybody fall asleep during that? I mean, it's not boring. I mean, I think it's actually very interesting, but I'm going to get into the OB part in just a minute. So just remember, yes, you can actually screen for this by a variety of different questionnaires. I'm going to present some results using some of these questionnaires in just a moment. Or you could send a patient off for a formal sleep study, otherwise known as a polysonogram, in order to determine the AHI. All right. So 5 to 15 mild, 15 to 30 moderate, and then greater than 30 per hour is severe. Risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea are varied. The first one is age because it's more likely to occur as people get older. Another risk factor is biological sex, and that's because this is much more likely to happen in men compared to women, although pregnancy can kind of even that out. Also, a risk factor is BMI. We've already discussed that because the odds of developing OSA go up in direct proportion to the patient's BMI. There are also some anatomical factors that a patient may have that raise the risk of OSA, like a smaller and lower set jaw, enlarged tonsils, or a very enlarged tongue can all give airway obstruction, leading to obstructive sleep apnea. And of course, pregnancy in and of itself is a risk factor for OSA due to the physical and hormonal alterations from just being pregnant. OSA that occurs for the first time during pregnancy is, yep, you guessed it, gestational OSA. Boy, it's easy when the name and the diagnosis just kind of fits it, isn't it? Remember, we talked about that in the intro. If it's pre-existing, it's called pre-existing OSA or chronic OSA. And if it happens for the first time during pregnancy, then gestational OSA is a true diagnostic term. The most well-known sign or symptom of obstructive sleep apnea is snoring. Of course, as promised, we're going to talk about screening and obviously treatment of OSA in pregnancy later on in the episode. But for now, let's talk about the pathophysiology of this condition. According to the National Sleep Foundation, OSA typically occurs due to a natural relaxation of the muscles that surround the throat while a person sleeps. During the daytime, these muscles hold the airway open and facilitate breathing. But as these muscles relax during sleep, the airway becomes narrowed or it closes off and it reduces the space needed for airflow passage. For most people, this narrowing of the airway during sleep doesn't cause any significant problems. But in people who are susceptible to OCA, for example, those with a naturally narrow throat or those who are obese, this can become a real problem and there's failed attempts at inhalation. Trying to inhale against a closed or narrow airway creates abnormal levels of both oxygen and carbon dioxide in the blood. In addition, this leads to obvious fragmented sleep. 
Remember we talked about the AHI scale? That's how you quantify the number of episodes that happen within a sleep hour. Well, this is how it's all tied in. You see, when airflow is reduced by at least 30% for 10 seconds or more, then that episode is called hypopnea. But if airflow is reduced 90% or more for at least 10 seconds, that's actually described as apnea. This phenomena leads to sleep fragmentation, sympathetic stimulation, hypercarbia, and intermittent cycles of hypoxemia and reoxygenation. These pathophysiologic perturbations in turn contribute to inflammation, endothelial dysfunction, insulin resistance, and cardiovascular disease. That's why, man, when I said that the amount of sleep that you get is, is good, but quality is just as important. Although the mechanisms are not fully understood, it's this chronic inflammatory state and endothelial dysfunction that leads to impaired placental function. And here's the crazy thing. There's a lot of pathophysiological similarities between OSA and the etiology of preeclampsia. They follow similar lines. They travel on the same road. OSA and preeclampsia both seem to be this pro-inflammatory state with this imbalance between angiogenic and anti-angiogenic factors. In both OSA and preeclampsia, there's this very well-documented state of pro-inflammation and this higher level of triggering of the sympathetic nervous system. In OSA, as in preeclampsia, upregulation of anti-angiogenic proteins seems to lead to this endothelial dysfunction. This endothelial dysfunction is also implicated in vasoconstriction, hypertension, and proteinuria, just like with preeclampsia. And this is not just theoretical. Preliminary evidence that imbalances of pro- and anti-angiogenic proteins are associated with a diagnosis of OSA were found in a small retrospective study of pregnant women with the condition. This was published by Borgelli et al. in the Journal of Perinatal Medicine in 2015. And as if sleep apnea wasn't a problem in and of itself, it tends to bring along a friend. And that friend is bruxism. Bruxism is the often violent and persistent grinding of the teeth during sleep. Sleep, bruxism, and OSA are definitely linked. Bruxism rates are higher in individuals with OSA who experience more than five episodes of apnea or hypopnea per hour compared with healthy volunteers during sleep study measurements. Also, in one study, the timing of the sleep bruxism absolutely matched the apnea events, so the two are definitely related. My roommate in medical school had bruxism. Uh, It's crazy. I mean, we'd be studying together and he'd fall asleep in the chair. And all of a sudden, he'll start this grinding of his teeth. I'm like, buddy, you got to wake up, man. I mean, that thing's horrible. It's really freaking. It's very intense. And it's bad for the teeth. But not only that, that the masseter muscle, I mean, there's so much tension uh, in the muscles of the jaw that that leads again to this chronic inflammatory state. So it's all tied together. Okay, fine. So we know that this is a problem. But how do we identify these patients? I mean, it's one thing if patients come up to us and say, oh my goodness, listen, my partner says that I snore all night and I'm sleepy all throughout the day. Well, they've kind of diagnosed themselves. That's super helpful. But what if they're unaware of the problem? Polysonography, which is the gold standard at sleep study, is costly and it's intense and it's kind of cumbersome and some insurances may not pay for it. So what are we supposed to do in that case? 
Well, there are some screening questionnaires. We talked about that a little bit earlier on in the episode. So if you forward it to this point, yeah, you got to go back and listen to that. So the point is, even though there's a variety of different scales, one doesn't seem to be any better than the other, but they're not necessarily validated for pregnancy. And as we'll discuss in a moment, if you screen somebody early on in the first trimester and it's negative, that doesn't mean that they can't develop it later on. Because remember, there is that natural trend to develop OSA as the gestation advances. So some call for not just one-time screening in pregnancy, but screening in each trimester. Or if you're going to do it one time, then do it at least by mid-pregnancy, in other words, the earliest around 20 to 24 weeks, or do it at 28 weeks when the likelihood of it showing up would have happened by then. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, even though I've said this before, I have to say it again because it is important. Right now, there are not any national guidelines for screening for this condition in pregnancy. So your first thought is, well, why not? I mean, it's super easy to screen, at least by a questionnaire. Of those that you're really worried about, you can send them off to a sleep study if you have to. But I mean, it just takes a few minutes to screen somebody. Why not do that? We know this is linked to real maternal and neonatal adverse issues. We know that. So why not screen? Well, I'm going to get into that in a minute and I'm going to explain why. Uh, but it's not so clear-cut. Even though some are calling for, for screening, not just once, but ideally multiple times during the pregnancy, there's there's one factor here that we cannot overlook. And I don't want to get into that right now, but just remember that that's what's driving this, this the putting on the brakes, rather, on this national recommendation to screen for OSA in pregnancy. I'm going to tell you what that is in just a minute. But again, right now, SMFM, ACOG, FIGO, they all recognize this is a problem. Altered sleep in pregnancy is not good. But there's a reason why they don't recommend universal screening right now. Now, that may change because as obstructive sleep apnea is linked to preterm birth, and since we have now no great medication to try to fix preterm birth, now the Makina's kind of gone out the window, now it's getting new attention. Like, oh, man, what else can we look for to fix? Oh, maybe obstructive sleep apnea. So you see how something that gets shelved, like, oh, yeah, we'll talk about that later, now gets taken off the shelf and dusted off because, wow, maybe now we can impact preterm birth just by fixing sleep. So it's changing, but as of right now, remember, no national recommendations for this, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. Even though there's no national guideline for this, it hasn't stopped researchers and clinicians and experts in the field from trying to draft specific questionnaires for use in pregnancy. In 2019, in the Journal of the American Thoracic Society, researchers published the BAIT Evaluation for Obstructive Sleep Apnea in Pregnancy. This uses a combination of BMI, age, and tongue engorgement or enlargement as a tool for screening of OSA in pregnancy. So BMI, age, and tongue engorgement or enlargement are the BATE evaluation. 
As the authors state, quote, we have developed an algorithm that can be easily used in clinical practice to assess OSA risk during pregnancy. Although the sensitivity of the BATE algorithm was relatively low at 76 to 79 percent, its specificity of 82 to 83 percent is higher than others previously reported, end quote. And that's one of the problems with these scales. I mean, you see that sensitivity, 76 to 79? It's not terrible, but it's not great. And the specificity of 82 to 83, again, not terrible, but not really all that good either. And that's one of the issues with these kind of questionnaires. Whether it's the stop, bang, or the bait questionnaire, there's a variety of them. They're good, but they do have their limits. And pregnancy is no exception. All right, podcast family, as we get towards the end and we touch on treatment, I do have to tell you why screening for this is slightly controversial, even though others have called for this. Take, for example, a clinical abstract that was published in Obstetrics and Gynecology, the Green Journal, in May 2018 by Saeed et al., These clinicians screened 169 pregnant women with standard questionnaires in the third trimester. They also performed a chart review to look for some primary adverse issues like preeclampsia, IUGR, and GDM. They also did a secondary analysis for APGARS, uh, EGA at birth, and birth weight. And of course, as you would guess, those who identified as high risk based on the questionnaire went on to have these adverse perinatal issues. So the authors concluded, quote, identifying and treating those with OSA early in pregnancy may lead to a decreased risk of preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, and subsequent preterm deliveries, end quote. See, there's that tie-in to reduction in preterm birth. That's great. Nobody argues with that. Everyone's like, hey, I'm with you. That's fantastic. Early detection and treatment of OSA during pregnancy absolutely may protect against these adverse perinatal outcomes. But here's the catch and the conflict. Screening for any disease process is only as good as its proven intervention and therapy. And yes, we have a treatment for OSA. That's CPAP, Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. I'm going to talk about that coming up next. But we don't have any large-scale population data that treating this condition with CPAP actually does reduce those outcomes. It should. It makes sense. Everybody gets it. It's a low-risk intervention. But because we don't have an article, we don't have data to say, aha, we have OSA, we give them CPAP, we reduce their preterm birth rate by 30%. We don't have that or 40%, whatever it is. We don't have that data set yet. And that's why national organizations all recognize OSA as a problem. That's not controversial. What's controversial is if we give them CPAP as we should, because it's the gold standard for treatment, does that actually lead to improved outcomes? We think they do, but we don't have large-scale population data to show us that yet. You see why it's controversial? Now, I'm in the camp of what can it hurt? And in this case, the answer is none at all. I mean, it can only help. CPAP, as far as we know, has no adverse or any safety concerns in pregnancy. So this is okay. So I'm in the camp of, hey, definitely identify it. You can definitely try to improve this condition. It'll only make the patient feel better. And it may have the potential side effect of reducing these bad outcomes. So to be very clear, I am all in favor for screening for OSA in pregnancy. However, we don't have the data yet to say fixing this condition is better for the mom and the baby.
If you do a literature search on this as we have, you'll find these small cohort studies that have done this basically as a trial, all right? So there is some evidence, I have to say, that continuous positive airway pressure may have therapeutic benefit for lowering blood pressure in preeclampsia. Yeah, that's out there. For example, Whitehead et al. published that in Obstetrics and Gynecology in 2015. So yeah, there's data. But that Whitehead publication published out of the Green Journal, that's an N of one. Yeah, it's one case. This was a case report of a 35-year-old prima gravita who's diagnosed with preeclampsia at 30 weeks. And a sleep study confirmed that she had severe obstructive sleep apnea, so CPAP was given. After CPAP treatment, both clinical and biochemical markers of preeclampsia improved. And in addition, they state, quote, circulating angiogenic markers of preeclampsia improved. As a result, the pregnancy safely continued for 30 days, allowing the fetus to gain gestational time, end quote. Yeah, that's an N of one. Again, I'm not knocking it, thank goodness, for this data, but it's one. Do you see how we're lacking very large population-based studies? So again, it, we assume it works. It looks like it would work, but we definitely need much more data than reports like this. Similarly, others have published improvements in blood pressure during pregnancy with CPAP, like Edwards et al. that published their findings in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine in 2000. If you would like to look that up, I'll include that in the reference list on our Facebook page. And of course, the controversy goes on to deeper things, like things after the pregnancy. For example, we know that gestational diabetes raises the risk of frank diabetes later on. We know that hypertensive disorders in pregnancy increases the risk of future cardiovascular events down the road, right? We get that. In other words, pregnancy could be a type of stress test that picks up flags that the patient is more likely to develop later on. Well, is gestational OSA the same way? If a patient gets gestational obstructive sleep apnea, and then they deliver and it goes away, are they more likely to get it later on in pregnancy? We don't know that. So these are gaps in knowledge that still remain. And we don't know whether treating OSA in pregnancy, gestational OSA, and if it prevents gestational diabetes and preterm birth uh, and the other issues that it comes with, does that lead to decreased risk later on in life? We don't know. Those are large studies that take years to do. But my point is just, you see these knowledge gaps that happen? So just to be clear, yes, I'm in favor of doing something about it rather than ignoring it. We know it's a problem. So not doing anything gets into the question of, is that even ethical? I'm not going to get into that because we don't have time for that. Trust me, that's, I've sat in some of those discussions and it gets deep and very circular. Okay, why don't we move on from now? <laughs> Let's just stop there. I'll just say OSA is a problem. Definitely you can screen for it. You can do a sleep study. CPAP is safe, but does it prevent adverse outcomes? Not clear. We think so, but not clear. Oh boy. All right, let's move on. All right. I was just told by my team that I got all worked up there. Apparently my face got red. Hey, look, I'm, I'm saying what I feel. All right. Is that okay? Give me a break. <laughs> They're shaking their head. Well, we made it to the end. Now we need to cover treatment. Since there is a direct correlation between OSA and obesity, ideally this would be addressed in pre-pregnancy counseling. Patients that are overweight or obese and desire pregnancy, they should be encouraged to attain a more healthy BMI because it's an obvious benefit for OSA reduction. And it's a great motivator. Look, you don't sleep well at night or there's chances that you don't. Just by losing weight, not only does it improve your overall health, but it improves your 
your sleep quality, which could decrease your risk of pregnancy outcomes. That's a pretty good motivator right there. But there are few data sets to direct the treatment of established OSA in pregnancy. Women with known OSA who become pregnant should be evaluated by their sleep medicine specialist to optimize their CPAP settings. Studies have not been conducted to evaluate the safety of CPAP in pregnancy, but it's widely accepted that it's safe during gestation in any trimester. CPAP is still the first-line treatment for OSA, even in pregnancy. The goal is to achieve and maintain normalization of the AHI and maintain oxygenation throughout gestation with consistent use of CPAP. Follow-up visits or an automatically titrating CPAP machine is a useful way to go during gestation. As women with OSA are at risk for hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, some experts also recommend placing these women on low-dose aspirin prophylaxis, although it's not a formal risk factor on the ACOG risks-based low-dose aspirin prophylaxis protocol. And lastly, another reason why advocates of OSA screening in pregnancy are so passionate is because there's extra risks in the OR. I mean, this is an airway issue, so perioperative risks are also increased. If the patient, for whatever reason, uh, needs intubation or ventilation, OSA is a real problem. So not only is it a problem antepartum and intrapartum, but it's also a risk perioperatively as well. All right, podcast family, we have covered obstructive sleep apnea in pregnancy. What is not controversial is its association with adverse perinatal outcomes, including preterm birth. We get that. That's a solid fact. What's less sure is whether treatment with CPAP will actually reduce those risks. So we think it will. There's some evidence that it likely does, but we don't have any large population data to prove that. But overall, CPAP is safe in pregnancy. It is still the gold standard. And with little risks and some potential real benefits, I'm all in favor for screening for OSA in pregnancy and treatment. As always, we hope you've enjoyed this episode and we're thankful for you and we're glad you're part of our podcast community. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.